Uh, friends, if you have a Bible, please turn with me in them to First Timothy. Uh, we're continuing in our series in this letter entitled Living as God's Household. Um, Paul is finishing this section of 1 Timothy dealing with false teachers, uh, false teachers which are uh, very problematic in the church, false teachers who uh, sow seeds of discord and chaos and confusion in the family of faith where there's really no room for that. And so Paul begins um, this last section kind of wrapping up this larger theme of dealing with the false teachers in the church. Uh, so our sermon is entitled today, Fight for Good Things. Um, and so you'll find out what those things are as we look now to God's word. So if you're able, I invite you to stand with me. Uh, why do we stand? Uh, standing is an act of worship. Standing shows and reflects the posture of our hearts as we stand in reverence for God, reading and receiving it with humility and with expectation. So hear now God's word, 1 Timothy chapter 1, reading verses 18 to 20. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Please be seated. And join me once more as we ask the Lord's help. A good and gracious God, we know your word is perfect, and it comes to us an imperfect people. So it comes to us um, with instruction and correction. It comes to us to help conform our minds uh, to yours and our hearts to look like yours. And so do your work in us. Have your way with us as you now speak to us in this time. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You know, one of the most important lessons that parents want to teach their kids or teachers want to teach their students, uh, even pastors want to teach their congregation, uh, is the lesson, uh, don't fight. Don't fight. Avoid fighting at all costs. Of course, uh, fighting, um, you know, as children and not having that curb in them will just kind of lead them to grow up to be violent, argumentative, loose-tempered, and, and simply, uh, we just have too many of those kinds of people in the world. Uh, instead, we want to teach our children not to fight so that they are self-controlled and patient and love pursuing and making peace. But of course, anybody who knows, anybody who's lived in the real world knows that there are times when it's necessary and required to fight. Not that violence is the answer, but of course, there are times and occasions where fighting to protect the vulnerable and defend the powerless is required. Uh, if you remember a few years ago, there was that stretch of time where all over the news, there were all these reportings of, of attacks on senior elderly citizens. And when that happened, uh, those who idly sat by and watched these things take place, pulled out their cell phone and simply recorded them, who did nothing to pretend, uh, protect and defend the victims, they weren't praised for not fighting. They weren't praised for their nine violence. They were called out as cowards. Why? Because although fighting is bad, there are times it's necessary and it's required. The same thing is true in the church. We shouldn't fight in the household of God. We shouldn't argue. We shouldn't be at each other's throats because Jesus died so that we would be one. He died to unify us, not separate us. But it's also true that there's a kind of fighting that's necessary in the church, fighting for good and right reasons. Now, what are those reasons? What might they be? That's what I want to consider with you this morning as we look at this sermon, Fighting for Good Things. And so we're going to get straight into it. If you look with me at verse 18, Paul begins in this way. He says, this charge I entrust to you, Timothy, 
my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare. Now that phrase there, wage the good warfare, can be translated and is translated in other places uh, as fight the good fight. And so wage the good warfare is the ESV's translation. Fight the good fight is the CSB, the Christian Standard Bible's translation. Now the Greek word wage the good warfare is actually a military word. It means engage in combat. So Paul is saying there is a way in which, and for a reason by which you should be fighting in the church. So what is that thing? Well, let's take a look. Paul says, this charge I entrust to you, Timothy. Now, what charge is he talking about? Earlier in verse three, at the beginning of the chapter, he wrote, as I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. So the charge that Paul reiterates is basically this. There are problematic people in the church. They're teaching false doctrine. They're going around spreading speculations and committing themselves to endless genealogies. That's really not helpful. You need to go and confront it and you need to stop it. Now, admittedly, that is a scary thing to do, to go ahead and battle those who are being so disruptive in the church. And so Paul then reminds Timothy you know why you're called to do this? You know why you can't back away from this? It's because you were ordained by God to serve this church. See, there's that little phrase there in verse 18, the prophecies previously made about you. Now, what is he referring to? He's referring to Timothy's ordination. Because a few chapters later in 1 Timothy 4, Paul goes on to write, do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. When they set Timothy apart for the purpose of serving this church and this congregation. So do you understand kind of logic? Paul's saying, um, you're going to have to deal with all these problematic people in the church, people who are causing all these issues. And I know that you don't want to because that situation will be messy and uncomfortable. But God has called you. He set you apart for this task. And it would require a lot of boldness. It would require a lot of courage. Now, I see a lot of myself in Timothy because uh, we find out later in 2 Timothy that Timothy wasn't bold. He wasn't courageous. He wanted to avoid confrontation. And I think maybe you can understand that because imagine the aftermath. Timothy stands up and he confronts these people, these people who have a following in the church. They have friends in the church. They have supporters in the church. And they don't know all the inside story. They don't know everything that's going on. And so if Timothy confronts them and they leave, then now Timothy has to stay behind and pick up all the pieces. He has to deal with the aftermath. And Paul knows this is hard. And so he encourages Timothy, remember that you were ordained, that the elders laid hands on you. There are prophecies made about you for this purpose. I think that's why Paul uses the military metaphor, wage the good warfare. Because dealing with problematic people in the church, dealing with issues in the church, is like getting ready for war. It can be as stressful as disarming a bomb. Going through church struggles and church problems or church issues can produce, some of you know, a type of trauma in you, very similar to the PTSD that veterans go through when they return back from war. Paul saying, Timothy, you've been called to serve this church. So fight the good fight. Don't flee it. Wage the good warfare. Don't walk away from it. 
that's my imagination totally, but I can imagine Timothy just waiting and there's all this stuff going on in the church. And you know, nowadays we wait around for emails or texts, but he's waiting around for an actual parchment letter. And he's just going, oh my goodness, I really hope that Paul writes to me and says, listen, Timothy, I've heard that church situation is messy. I heard it's complicated. And I heard there's that false, there's that uh, faction of false teachers and they have such a strong foothold. It's not worth the trouble. Right? He says, my child, but I imagine him going, bro, it's not worth it. I mean, all the things you have to endure, I mean, you, I think you should look for an, another ministry position elsewhere. I think maybe it's time that you find another church. I mean, the Presbyterian Church in Antioch, that's a PCA church, and um, they've been searching for a senior pastor. I think maybe you'd be a great fit there. And I bring that up only because the reality is that it'd be easier for Timothy to leave. But Paul's point is that there are some things worth fighting for in the church. And among them, chief among them, is to guard the gospel from wrong doctrine, to uphold the beauty of God's gospel, because it is a saving power that gives life to those who believe. Timothy, fight the good fight. Guard the gospel. Yeah, I know it's easier to leave, but stick around. As we reflect on that, let me just draw out an implication for us as a church. And that implication, the first one is this, fight for the gospel, but not for lesser things. Right? Paul's encouragement to Timothy wasn't just to fight for the sake of fighting. It's to fight for the sake of the gospel, to preserve it, because people can find hope and life and forgiveness in the gospel. So it's a good thing to fight for. But here's the sad reality. You look at the state of churches today, look at your own personal record of churches you've gone to and been in, and you see all this fighting that's taken place. Members drawing sides against one another over personal disagreements, issues that are called strife and division, anger and mistrust. And it really shows that most Christians have their priorities misplaced because we fight about all these lesser things. We're not fighting to uphold the gospel, to preserve doctrine, but we're fighting and we're at each other's throats over a lot of personal preferences. It makes me think, what might you and I need to commit to so that Satan could never, in this church at least, never drive a wedge between us and keep the family of faith, the one body of Christ, from being divided. You know, what are the commitments we need to make to not fight against one another, but to fight for the right things? Uh, Phil Riken, he's a commentator. Uh, he tells, he records for uh, us a story um, presented by a pastor who wrote uh, about his church in a leadership magazine. And this pastor was going through this whole ordeal in the church about church fighting and disputes. And let me just read for you what this pastor wrote. He said, uh, last spring, the hospitality committee, they put a little coffee stand in the narthex. That's essentially like the uh, welcoming, you know, open, open area of the church. The next day, the head usher of 25 years quit in protest, saying it was a sacrilege to the church sanctuary. All the ushers quickly became upset. Since a committee had put the coffee there, the session had to decide on the issue, so they set up a task force that, might, that met for eight weeks to listen to the ushers and the hospitality committee. One Sunday, a bunch of ushers decided not to show up to church because we hadn't brought back the head usher yet, so then the elders were ticked off at the ushers. In the middle of that, it was just the pastor speaking, I'm not talking to anybody about Jesus. I'm not making hospital calls or shepherding people through grief. I'm trying to figure out whether we should serve coffee in the narthex. 
It's a silly example, but all too often, the details aren't far off from the fights maybe we've witnessed and you've witnessed. And some of you come from church backgrounds where you've seen fighting among church members, fighting among church leaders, fighting between church members and church leaders, fighting verbally, fighting physically in the parking lot. I remember in seminary, I went to a friend's church. He was a uh, intern at a church and you walked into the church and on the front bulletin board were stapled restraining orders against certain members and deacons and elders because there had been a fist fight the week before. And you see something like that and it should absolutely discourage you. It should sadden you, grieve you because this kind of fighting combativeness among believers in the church should not exist. If anything you fight for, you fight for the gospel. You fight for its advancement, not fight against one another. It gives a terrible witness to Christ and does tremendous harm to the church. You know, what would it look like if you made a commitment, those of you who call Cornerstone your family, your spiritual family, what would it look like for you to make a commitment to not fight against another Christian about these lesser things, these things that would unnecessarily divide? What kind of commitments would you need to make? You need to make the commitment to not participate in rumors and gossip. You need to make the commitment not to, conf- to listen to slander and bad-mouthing, but to confront it when you hear it. You need to make the commitment to refuse to assume things about people that you've heard and not assign motives to them without talking first. You would have to commit to seeking clarity and truth when you hear something alarming or concerning instead of judging and presuming. You need to make the commitment that when you're wronged by somebody, hurt and offended by them, that you first speak to them before you go out to everybody else and speak about them. What commitments might you need to make so that we preserve not fighting against one another, but fighting for the gospel, for it to be preserved and preached, cherished and celebrated, for the gospel to be advanced in people's lives, in this community and to the greater world. It's really my prayer the Cornerstone, we wouldn't be a church so distracted by infighting, but we'd be instead consumed by a fight for the gospel to go forth to tear down the walls of unbelief so that the hope and renewal of Jesus Christ might be made known in the world. Fight for the gospel. Don't fight for lesser things. Don't fight about lesser things. Well, Paul continues... And so do we. In verses 18 and 19, he says that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. Paul says there are two things you must do when you wage the good warfare or fight the good fight. First is to hold the faith. Hold the faith. Now, by the way, this is not personal faith. not like hold to your personal faith. It's hold to the faith. Hold to the Christian faith. Make sure your faith is biblical and true and orthodox. Don't buy into the different doctrines. Don't buy into the speculations and the endless genealogies. Keep a firm grasp on what you believe. Don't let it go. Don't assume it. Don't let it out of sight. Hold to it. Imagine that you were walking on a, you're going on a hike and you fell off of a steep cliff. And as you're falling, a hand comes out and grabs you and you're holding on to the hand. How do you hold on to that? with all your strength, with all your might, white-knuckled. Paul's saying, hold on to the gospel in that kind of way, that kind of intensity, that kind of attention. Hold on to the gospel in the same way that you hold on to your cell phone. You ever bought a new cell phone and you left the store, you don't yet have a case, you don't have a screen protector. I mean, you hold on to that bad boy tight. Hold on to your faith. 
Keep a firm grasp on it. And secondly, Paul says, hold on to a good conscience. Now, what does this mean? How do you have a good conscience? A good conscience is when the things you believe about God lead to the way that you live for God. Right? That right knowledge of God translates then to right living for God. So here's the problem. If you believe one thing about God and his truth, but then you live a different way, your conscience will be bothered. It will be stricken. There will be hypocrisy at work in you. When your intellectual scent, I believe in these things, and your ethical living, I'm living life this way, are aligned, you have a good conscience. Your conscience is clear. It's pure. When you say you believe this about God, and then you live completely the opposite way, and you're out of sync, your conscience is spoiled. It's rotten. So Paul says, when you fight the good fight, fight to hold on to the things you believe, but also fight to live the right way. To have a good conscience, a conscience unbothered, because you're not living in hypocrisy, but you're living honestly before the Lord. Well, here's the second implication, friends. Fight to keep a good conscience before God. Let me ask you, do you seek to have a good conscience? Do you have a good conscience here today? I don't know how you came in today, whether you came in happy and well, or you came in sad, you came in defeated. But as you come in today, how is your conscience? Is it good and pure before the Lord? Or have you grown seared in your conscience? And there's a story about a man who went to go see a psychiatrist. He sat on the couch and he confessed, Doc, I've been misbehaving. I've been pursuing all the wrong things, not living life the way I know I should. My conscience is troubling me. The doctor responded, so what would you like help on? Do you need help to strengthen your willpower to live the way you should? The man said, well, no, doc. I was thinking you'd help me weaken my conscience. You see, friends, too often when we sin, when you sin, when you live in rebellion against God, disobedience, when you pursue your flesh, when you're delighting the things of the world, the result is that your conscience is usually pricked. Your conscience doesn't sit right. But what happens is you're so far in the hole, you're you're so blinded by the pleasures of the world, so deceived by Satan and his lie, so handed over to your flesh, that because you don't want to live with a stricken conscience, because you feel guilty and not so good about it, what do you give up? Do you give up that sinful lifestyle that you're loving? Or do you give up the faith? You see, often people who make a shipwreck of their faith They abandon the faith, not because they stopped believing some truths. It's because they were living so much in sin, caught up in its web, that their conscience couldn't bear it. And so what do they choose to give up? Not my sin, not my idolatry, but my faith. So this is why Paul says and instructs Timothy, if you fight the good fight, you need to hold to both the faith and the good conscience. I think most of us in this room, especially as elders do membership interviews, we ask you about your faith and you're able to share the gospel. You're able to define for us in beautiful ways what the gospel is. Most of us have no problem holding on to the faith, but the problem comes in the conscience part. How are we living it out? So when people walk away, it's not because they stop believing Jesus is the son of God. Because they're so enthralled in this sin they know that I can't do this sin if I also believe Jesus is the Son of God, and so I'd rather do this sin than believe that truth. So we're called 
to hold on, fight for a good conscience before God. Because as John Owen said, the great Puritan, he said, you better kill sin or sin will kill you. So friends, what does that mean? I mean, how do you do this? You examine yourself, you open yourself up to investigation by God. Psalm 139 is the beautiful psalm about being in fashion in the mother's womb, but Psalm 139 ends with the most dangerous prayer a Christian can pray. Do you know the words in verses 23 and 24? Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. What might it mean to come before God and say, Lord, expose me and investigate me? Where are the things in my life that you need to shine your light on because they've been hiding in darkness too long? What are the things that you need to bring out because I've kept them buried for so long? And would you give me strength to crucify the flesh and my sins? Some of you try your best to keep quiet times, devotions, personal worship. And often they're so centered around reading God's word and then praying in response. But how often do we take time throughout the day for introspection and self-reflection before God? Laying your heart bare and say, Lord, search me and know me. We do this corporately as a family of faith every time we get ready to partake of the Lord's Supper. You know, if you've noticed, uh, if you've been here for a while, we always announce the Lord's Supper one week in advance. Now, why do we do that? It's not like we're announcing an event, like, hey, everyone, get ready, come next week. The announcement is actually an invitation. The announcement is an invitation saying, knowing we're going to come and partake of the Lord's Supper, spend this week in deeper reflection and self-examination and prayer. Check your conscience before the Lord. Is there unrepentant, persistent sin? Are there patterns of behavior or attitudes you need to submit before God? Is my heart being engulfed? such overwhelming desire for all these other things that aren't the Lord. The Lord's Supper is one way that we collectively as a spiritual family check our consciences. 1 Corinthians 11, Paul actually says, let a person examine himself. And so eat of the bread and drink of the cup for anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. The Lord's Supper isn't just a family meal because we take it together and we eat it at the same time, but because collectively we check our consciences before God. Dear friends, it's good to fight, to keep a good conscience before God, lest you become like Hymenaeus and Alexander. Paul writes in verses 19 and 20, he says, by rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander. It's interesting, if you remember earlier in the letter, he was trying to be uh, nice about it, and he just called them certain persons. He didn't name them. He didn't want to embarrass them. But as he's writing, his heart begins getting burdened. He says, okay, all of you, we know who we're talking about here. Hymenaeus and Alexander. He says, unless you want to be like them, you want to share the same faith, if you want to shipwreck your faith, then pay attention. Hear and heed the warning. Ask yourself what sins and temptations or idols are floating around in my life, in my heart, like an iceberg that are ready to shipwreck my faith. 
And, and the thing is that that requires close examination because you know what the thing about icebergs, what you see is only 10% of the entire density of this iceberg. What you see just in your life doesn't look that bad, but it requires deeper reflection to see what it is that might unsuspectingly ruin my faith. And so fight to keep your conscience pure before God. And we end like this as Paul ends this chapter. Let me read again verses 19 to the end of 20. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander. This is where it gets interesting. Whom I have handed over to Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme. You know, that phrase there, hand over to Satan, is strange. Um, what does it mean? It's actually a reference to church discipline. It's a reference specifically to excommunication. Hand over to Satan. Paul used that once before in 1 Corinthians 5. He's talking about a problem in the church there. This is what he writes. He says, uh, when you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan. Hand him over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. What Paul has in mind here is a sin that is so egregious, a sin that is so unrepentant, that by committing them and living in them, you are disqualifying your own profession of faith. Handing over to Satan is excommunication, which means that you are removing a member from communion and fellowship of the church, and you are in effect treating them as an unbeliever. It makes sense, doesn't it? If we are the family of faith and one does not have faith, then they cannot be treated as a member of that family. So if they're not a member of the family, they can't come and partake of the family meal, which is why the first consequence of being excommunicated is being barred from the Lord's Supper. So the question is, why does Paul say hand it over to Satan? I mean, that's like really dramatic. That's, that's really, sounds really, really severe. But he says, because theologically, his point is this. If you're not part of God's family, you're not just neutrally existing out in the world. If you're not part of God's family, you are actually part of Satan's dominion. Because you either exist in God's kingdom or in Satan's. So Paul actually writes this in, in Colossians chapter 1. He, he says, he, that's God, has delivered us from where we were, the domain of darkness, and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. You exist in one or the other. You don't exist in both. A removal from one is re-entry into the other. John Calvin, the great reformer, writes this about discipline. He says, since it is in the church that Christ holds the heart of his kingdom, outside the church there is nothing but the dominion of Satan. Thus he who is cut off from the church must necessarily fall for a time under Satan's tyranny till he is reconciled to the church and returns to Christ. Paul says, you discipline in order then that someone would return to Jesus. Paul writes in here in verse 20, he says, these two men were disciplined, why? That they might not learn to blaspheme. He writes in 1 Corinthians 5 that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Church discipline is different than the justice pursued after in the world. It's not simply about shaming somebody for their sin. It's not about exacting a punishment over them for their offense. 
Church discipline is about protecting the household of God from sin, and it's about pursuing the sinner to win them over to Christ in repentance. Therefore, when a church practices church discipline, it's not unloving and ungracious, but it's the most loving and gracious thing we can do. That members would be awakened to the reality of the deceitfulness of sin's influence that is at work in us, not just the weakest of us, but even the strongest of us. That we would be sobered up to see it for what it is. Discipline reminds you you can't just coast your way into heaven. Because remember, the author of Hebrews wrote in Hebrews 12 let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. And all this leads to our third and final implication. Fight to disciple and discipline one another. Fight to disciple and discipline one another. Often when we think of discipline, probably the first thing that your mind thinks of is excommunication. But excommunication is the most severe form of discipline in the church. But the root word of discipline, can you guess what it is? It's disciple. What is discipline? It's a process of discipleship where you are pointing out sin and correcting sin so that that person's life may be lived in conformity to Christ as a disciple. And so discipline exists on a spectrum. To be honest, I mean, you may not have expected this coming here, but all of you sitting under the preaching are under discipline at this moment. Discipline begins with the instruction from God's word, calling sin out for what it is and calling us to look to Jesus. So pastorally, there is a general discipline in the preaching of the word on the one hand, and then there is a formal discipline, excommunication from the church on the other. The preaching of the word, general discipline, excommunication, formal discipline. But in between the spectrum, there is a lot of discipline taking place. And how does that discipline take place? Through each other. Through the discipleship and the correction and the rebuke that we give to one another. Friends, there is a responsibility among the people of God whether it's spending time in fellowship or catching up at youth group or bridge or home builders or getting deeper in community groups or just spending time with people outside of the church throughout the week, there are opportunities and a responsibility attached to it by which we're called to point out sin and to point each other to Christ. This was God's wisdom. This is why Jesus instructs in teaching about church discipline in Matthew 18, he says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell it to the elders. No. You go, confront him, disciple him, discipline him between you and him alone because if he listens, you've gained your brother. But what if that doesn't work? Well, if he doesn't listen, go tell it to the elders. No. Take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Before it's ever formally told to the church, discipline and discipleship happens when you rub shoulders with one another. It is our opportunity and responsibility to do this as a family of God. I'm sure it's uncomfortable. Who wants to be that guy? Of course, it involves taking a risk. 
but when the potential consequence is that they might make a shipwreck of their faith. We now feel that responsibility and desire. And we do whatever we can for one another that nobody would shipwreck their faith and be handed over to Satan. We fight to do this because left to ourselves, we want to always do what's easy, least messy, uncomplicated, and comfortable. But as God's household, let's fight so that we would run the race and finish it together. Now here, I do want to make it clear, there's only so much you can do with warning and pleading and urging and exhorting. If somebody is obstinate and stubborn in sin, there's only so much you can do. You know, Paul uses the metaphor of a shipwreck, and as soon as you say shipwreck, you know, I'm a child in the 90s, the first thing I think of is the Titanic. And I realize there are some of you who are young enough to actually not know what the Titanic is. The Titanic was, at the time, a passenger ship, the largest ship afloat, that set sail from England April 10th, 1912, headed to New York City the largest ship on water at the time. And as it was going four days into the journey, RMS Titanic received six warnings that there was drifting ice ahead from other boats in the vicinity. And for reasons that are unclear, uh, the warnings weren't heeded and the ship continued on its course and at its speed. And shortly after 11.40 p.m., RMS Titanic struck an iceberg and sank in less than three hours, taking with it an estimated two-thirds of those on board, about 1,600 people. You see, the radio operators from all those other ships, they reported that they saw fields of ice hours before, but they could only warn and they could only advise. They couldn't do more than that. Because after that, everything was up to the crew of the Titanic. I bring that up because as a family of faith, all you and I can do is warn when we see others living in sin, misplacing priorities, neglecting spiritual duties, pursuing after things in the world. You cannot control whether your words are heeded, listened to. You can't make somebody repent. And so the only responsibility you and I bear is to confront and alert and draw attention to the drifting ice ahead. And I pray that we would be that kind of spiritual family that cares enough, loves enough, that we would do this hard task, that we would give up fighting one another and we would begin fighting for one another. You see what a glorious picture it would be if all of us could make it through this lifetime without shipwrecking our faith and together on that final day, we dock in the harbor of heaven. And we will have only done it by God's perseverance, by his grace, through surrounding us with brothers and sisters in Christ who helped us stay the course. So friends, Paul encouraged Timothy and he encourages us, wage the good warfare, fight the good fight. And do you know what's promised for those who do? It's the promise of a crown of righteousness. Because at the end of his life, awaiting his own execution, Paul writes to Timothy one more time. In 2 Timothy 4, Paul writes, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith 
Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. We fight and we persevere in this life. We fight the good fight. We wage the good war for because at the end of this life, Christ Jesus stands at the finish line ready to award you the victor's crown. The crown that he himself won when he fought the fight and waged the war that you and I could never win. Christ Jesus, our Lord, who battled, defeated, and conquered sin and Satan and now stands at the finish line ready to bestow upon you the crown of righteousness. You receive it not in your victories, successes, and triumphs over your life, but you receive it when you get to the finish line despite your failures, despite your losses. You'll receive the crown simply because you came to him. Because you loved his appearing. You looked to him in faith. You long for him in your heart. As I close the road, the road from now until we see Jesus one day is a long and hard road. Paul was wise to use the words warfare. Every day, a battle to hold to our faith and live with a good conscience. And so fight the good fight. When it seems like loved ones in the family of faith, those whom we care about deeply, maybe even our own blood family members won't seem to make it fight for them as well. Fight to keep them on course, not straying too far. We depart here from the earth, and one day, by the grace of God, we will dock in the harbor of heaven and receive the crown of righteousness from the Lord himself. Would you pray with me?